seated. Good morning, Life Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, whether you're in the room here or online, welcome. I'm glad to see you. If you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, but before we get to Philippians, I'm going to spend some time in Acts chapter 16. And so, however you want to approach that, if you want to just turn to Acts 16, if you want to turn to Philippians and like stick your thumb there and then flip to Acts 16. Either way you want to do that, um, we are going to be in those two chapters today. So there is a statement um, that I hear that over the last like few months or years has increasingly gotten under my skin and started to bother me and frustrate me. Um, I wonder if you can pick out the problem with it. Here's the statement. The statement is, Jesus is the most important part of my life. You hear it? Jesus is the most important part of my life. See, that statement, it envisions a life that can be broken down by like a pie chart of some kind, right? Where you're just going to slice your life up into these different pieces. You're going to have the piece dedicated to your family here, and the piece dedicated to your work or your education here, the piece dedicated to your social life, and you do have a piece for Jesus, and it's the most important piece of your pie, maybe the biggest piece of your pie, but at the end of the day, that statement, it envisions Jesus as just being one of the things in your life, and the reason that statement frustrates me to such a degree is because the Bible nowhere leaves us room to imagine a life where Jesus is just one piece of that, right? The Bible nowhere gives us permission to understand our life as having all of these different things and Jesus is just one of those things sort of in this long line of other things. No, the Bible, it envisions Jesus as being the reality that shapes every other reality, the truth that makes everything else true, the being who brings everything else into order. And so Jesus himself, when he talks about these things, I mean, this is what he said in John chapter 15. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for, and then listen to this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, that's not a description of a being who is merely a part of your life. That's a description of a being who is your life. Apart from him, there is no life. Apart from him, you can do nothing. This isn't a picture of a life that gets compartmentalized, where you have a Jesus compartment and an everything else compartment. That's a picture of a life where Jesus is everything. Or consider for a moment what this same idea would look like through the lens of marriage. It was just about 20 years ago that I tricked my wife, Kristen, into marrying me. And I've been very grateful for the fact that I was able to dupe her ever since then. 20 years ago, about, we stood up in front of a room of people in a church building and we made promises, vows of commitment to one another. And in that moment, two independent people became one. That's what the Bible calls marriage. It calls marriage a union of man and wife to become one flesh. And we did, in that moment, become one flesh. And increasingly, over the years since, our lives have resembled that. I mean, we now, as a result of that commitment, share a name, we share an address, we share a bank account, we share a bed, and we share virtually everything that we can share. Now, just, I told the first service, 
There are some things that we don't share. We don't share a tube of toothpaste, for example, because I still, after 20 years, haven't managed to teach her how properly to roll the tube of toothpaste up from the bottom. But for the most part, we share everything that we can possibly share because we are one. And we feel it. Like if I come home and Kristen isn't there, I don't really like it. Like if I'm on the road and not there at night, Kristen doesn't really like that because we are one and we feel like we are one. Now imagine for a moment a husband and a wife who, just like we did almost 20 years ago, stood up at the front of a church building and made promises to one another and then they went back to their separate homes and they continued to live with separate names and they did not unite in any real or meaningful way. Like we would look at that and say, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, why would a married man live like he's a single man? Why would a married woman live like she is a single woman? That's not what marriage is supposed to be. Yet that's very much how a lot of us approach our relationship with the Lord. We remember the day when we made vows professing our faith in him. It's a lot like a marriage ceremony, to be honest. But since that day, while we give him some time in our week, and while we devote some portions of our life to him, we continue to live our independent, autonomous lives as if Jesus is just one part of our lives. We don't live like he is our lives. Now, I hope you can see that I'm headed to the point where I say to you, that's nothing like the life that Jesus calls us to in his word. And that's nothing like the life that Jesus is truly worthy of. Friends, Jesus should change everything in your life. I mean, Jesus has bought every single breath you will ever take with the price of his blood. He is therefore worthy of every single breath that you will ever take. Every single breath that you ever breathe should be breathed for him. And that truth is the heartbeat of the book of Philippians. This idea that Jesus should change everything, that's the heartbeat of the book of Philippians. Now, I'm excited that today we begin a series walking through this New Testament letter. Lord willing, we're going to spend um, the, the weeks leading up to the season of Advent in the first two chapters of this book, and then sometime in the spring of next year, again, Lord willing, we'll come back to the last two chapters of this book. But as we walk through this book, this, this book is going to show us who Jesus is, and how who Jesus is influences every single slice of life's pie. How it influences every single reality in our realities. And so it's for that reason that I'm grateful that we get to walk through this book together. Let's, let's jump in. Let me pray for us. And then I'll talk to you about how we're going to approach the time that we have today. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes that increasingly see that Jesus is worthy of every breath that we take, of every step that we take, of every word that comes from our mouth, of every thought in our minds, of every beat of our hearts. Those things belong to him. He's worthy of our devotion expressed through all of them. And so never, Father, should we say, that Jesus is merely part of our lives. Never should we devote mere hours of our days or weeks to him, but rather every second should be. 
And so we pray this morning that you would help us to see that and to understand that. And then increasingly to bring our own lives in line with that. We thank you for the fact that you work through your word to accomplish these very purposes in us, your people. And so I pray today that your spirit would speak, that we might hear him through your word and be changed by him through your word. Pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today, we're embarking on a journey through this book um, I feel like we're just kind of shoving our ship offshore as we begin to walk through this book of Philippians. And so to get things started, um, I want us to spend some time thinking about three things today. First of all, we're going to talk a bit about the backstory of the book of Philippians and, and who these people were that the Apostle Paul was writing to. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the big picture of the book of Philippians I'm going to try to like lay before you some of the main ideas and themes that we're going to see over the weeks and months, ultimately, that we'll spend in this book. And then lastly, at the end, we'll come back to just the first couple of verses of Philippians chapter 1, the greeting in this book, so that we can wrestle with a few of the ideas that are there. So the backstory, the big picture, and then the greeting. Let's start with the first of those things. Um, the city of Philippi the ancient Roman city of Philippi, it rose to prominence in world history for the first time in the year B.C. 42 because it was the city where the Roman leaders Octavian and Mark Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius in battle. Now, Brutus and Cassius, those are the dudes who assassinated Julius Caesar on the floor of the Roman Senate. And Octavian and Mark Antony were the dudes who sought to punish them for that rebellion. And they did that ultimately, finally, in battle in Philippi. And so from that moment forward, this city, Philippi, grew in prominence and stature. By the time of the New Testament, it was a very significant Roman city politically, commercially, and militarily. Let's talk especially about like, why it was so significant commercially, because we're going to see that even as we walk through um, some scripture this morning. So commercially, Philippi was located right on what, is, what was called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatian Way, which was this major highway that connected Asia to the east and the Roman Empire to the west. And so, especially when it came to trade and commerce, if you were a Roman citizen and you wanted to trade your goods in Asia, you had to go through Philippi on the Via Ignatia. And if you were an Asian who wanted to trade your goods in Rome, you had to come through Philippi along the Via Ignatia. And so as a result of that, Philippi was a diverse city, it was a growing city, and it was an economically significant city. It was also the first city in which the gospel of Jesus Christ came in Europe, right? It was the first European city to receive the gospel. And that's why I asked you to turn to Acts chapter 16 because we see in Acts chapter 16 the work that the Lord did to bring his gospel to Philippi and through Philippi to Europe and to start his church there. We won't read all of this, but you can just kind of track along with me in Acts 16 if you will. Uh, beginning of verse 6, we, we run into Paul, the apostle, and he's with a couple of friends, one especially named Silas, another named Timothy, and ultimately one called Luke, who writes down the book of Acts for us. Um, on, in Acts chapter 16, these men, they're on what we call Paul's second 
missionary journey, right? He's traveling through the world, encouraging Christians, and trying to preach the gospel in new places to plant new churches. And it's his desire on the second missionary journey, we realize, uh, to go into Asia with the gospel. But, but Luke, who's writing this down, tells us in verse 6 that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so, because that didn't work out, Paul then attempted to go to this place called Bithynia, but verse 7 tells us the Spirit of Jesus did not allow Paul and his companions to go to Bithynia. So we have the Holy Spirit restraining Paul, directing him, guiding him. I don't know what that looked like. I don't really think that that was like some kind of Holy Spirit force field that kept him from going into Asia or kept him from going to Bithynia, but, but the Lord did not want him to go to those places, and he revealed that to Paul. Why didn't the Lord want him to go there? Well, because the Lord called him to Macedonia, which is the province. Philippi was the city in that province. Verse 9, Paul has this vision at night. A Macedonian man is standing there and summoning him, saying to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and his companions did. It was almost a 400-mile journey from where they were in Troas to Macedonia and into Philippi. But they embarked upon that journey and arrived there, a place that had never heard the truth of Jesus, a place where there was no church, where there were no Christians. Paul and his companions arrived, and God began to work. The work in Philippi began with a woman named Lydia. Now, Luke tells us a couple of significant details about Lydia. We learn, first of all, that she is from the city of Thyatira, which means she's from Asia. She's an immigrant in Philippi. Why has she come to Philippi? Well, because she's a trader in purple cloth. Now, we don't necessarily feel this way today, probably, but purple cloth in the ancient world, man, you only wore purple if you had some coin, right? It was the nicest cloth, the most rare and expensive cloth. And so the fact that Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth, that's a subtle way of telling us that that Lydia's got some bank, right? Because you don't trade purple cloth unless you've got a lot of purple cloth. You don't have purple cloth unless you have some money, And so Lydia is this Asian woman who has come into Philippi to deal in her purple fabrics. And here she is in Philippi one day. She's down by the river praying on the Sabbath day. And and Luke, who writes Acts, he tells us that Lydia, um, that she was a worshiper of God. Now, that doesn't mean that she's a Christian. It just means that she's the kind of person who's drawn to spiritual things, right? She's interested. She's seeking. And then the Lord brought the Apostle Paul into her life, and she found the God that she was seeking, the God that she desired to worship. Luke tells us in chapter 16, verse 14 of Acts, that as Paul proclaimed the gospel to her, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She believed. Now friends, anytime... Somebody is converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what has to happen. The Lord has to unstop our eyes so that we can see. He has to open our ears so that we can hear. He has to soften our hearts so that we move from apathy and indifference into receptivity to the word and to the spirit. And that's exactly what the Lord did in Lydia's life. She believed. And then verse 15 tells us that immediately... 
she was baptized and not just her, her whole household with her because presumably she went and got everybody in her household and said, hey, listen to this. And then the Lord also opened their eyes and ears to be able to hear and believe the gospel. And so they were baptized too. And then Lydia said to Paul and to his companions, you guys, you should come just live in my house while you're here in Philippi doing ministry. And so they did. And the church in Philippi was born. The next person that got added to the church in Philippi, as we continue to read in Acts 16, was this slave girl. Now she's a slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit, a demonic spirit of some kind that allows her to tell people's fortunes. And because of that, she made a lot of money for her owners, right? People would come to her, she would tell them whatever their tea leaves said, I don't know, and then they would pay her owners. And so this slave girl was a really lucrative business to her owners. But anyway, when Paul and his companions show up in Philippi, she recognizes them, and perhaps through the work of the evil spirit in her, because remember, evil spirits, they know the truth about Jesus just as much as anybody else might. They don't necessarily believe that truth, but they know that truth. And so this slave girl, she follows Paul and his companions around saying, this is verse 17, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so she's just following Paul and his companions around, shouting this about them to the, fact, to the degree that Paul actually gets annoyed with her, Luke tells us, and so he exercises the demon from her. Good for her, right? No more demon. Presumably she's converted in the process because she already knew the truth. Now the demon's not preventing her from believing that truth, but bad for her owners. And so her owners get ticked off because they're no longer getting the income that she used to bring their way. So what do they do? They trump up some charges. They go to the magistrate. They lead Paul and his companions there, and they basically falsely accuse Paul and his companions of stirring up unrest in the city. Does that slow the gospel down? No. And Paul and his companions, they're attacked by this mob. The magistrates, the people who are responsible for treating them legally, treat them unlawfully, and they give orders to beat them with rods, stripping their clothes off of them, and then they throw them in prison. But friends, even a Roman prison doesn't slow the gospel down. And so Luke, as he continues, tells us, verse 25, that at midnight, Paul and Silas in prison were praying and singing hymns to God. What a testimony. The other prisoners there were listening to them. And then suddenly there's this earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. The doors are open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened. And the jailer rushes in and he draws the sword because he's about to kill himself. He realizes that if all of these prisoners have escaped, his punishment is going to be death. And so he's just going to end his life right then and there. But Paul calls out to him, verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer falls down with fear and trembling before Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And all of them believed. They were baptized at once, he and his family, Luke tells us. And then like Lydia, he welcomes Paul and his companions into his house. They break bread together and rejoiced because they had believed in God. So the reason I point this out, this backstory, is so that we can witness the fact that from its very beginning, the Philippian church was a testimony to the power and to the grace of God. Right, Paul, he, he came to Philippi, 
He preached the gospel in Philippi. And what happened? God saved people in Philippi. Now, 10 years later probably, he's writing the letter of Philippians to this healthy church, a church that he has deep love for, deep affection for, and fond memories of the time that he spent with them. And it's going to be clear from the letter that he writes that they shared that same love and affection for him. As we think about that backstory, I think it should encourage us in two ways. First, it should encourage us to do the work of evangelism. But as believers in Jesus, this should compel us to tell other people about the Christ in whom we believe. Because the Lord, he's just as able to save today as he was able to save on these days recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. He's just as able to save in Rowan County in North Carolina as he was in ancient Philippi. Right? The obstacles that people have to coming to faith today, the obstacles that we feel when it comes to sharing our faith with people, they are not greater than the obstacles that the Apostle Paul and his companions faced when they were beaten and thrown in prison. The obstacles that people had, they were not greater than demon possession. In other words, the challenge is just as great today as it was then. The gospel is just as powerful today as it was then. And so we should be encouraged to share good news with lost and hurting people, just as we see Paul and his companions doing here. Now I know when it comes to personal evangelism, we're often deterred. We're deterred by a fear of rejection. We don't want people to reject us. We're, we're deterred by a fear that comes from not knowing the right things to say, we think. We're deterred because we talk ourselves into wanting to preserve and protect the relationships that we have with people. We don't want to risk what might happen to those relationships. And we start coming across as some kind of Jesus fanatic. And friends, I want to acknowledge that those obstacles are real. They are. But they're not greater than the obstacles we see the Lord overcoming here. So I think we should just celebrate the fact that God, he can deal with those obstacles. In fact, it's his job to deal with those obstacles. It's his job to open people's hearts so that they will pay attention to us when we proclaim the truth. That doesn't mean that we are guaranteed success every time. That doesn't mean that we'll see fruit from that labor every time. What it means is that whether or not we see fruit, that's God's job to determine and not ours. Our job is that we should be faithful with the message that we have been given. And I can't help but be encouraged in that as I look at the story, and I hope, and I pray that you're encouraged in that as well. The second thing, the second way that this backstory, I think, should encourage us is that it really should just encourage us to love the local church. I mean, God could have used any means imaginable to bring people to himself. He could have used any means imaginable to redeem broken and lost people. He could have used any means imaginable to save sinners. It's not like he didn't have enough ideas. It's not like he was limited in his options. He is God, after all. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. God chose to save people through a local church. He chose to save people through a gathering and assembly of his people in a specific place and a specific time. Now, 
according to his grace and by his purposes. He has many, many, many of those gatherings all over the world, and we praise him for that. But his plan remains to save people through a gathering of his people in a specific place and a specific time. He intends to save people through his local church. Why? Well, it's because the local church, the community that is formed and transformed by the power of the gospel, remains the greatest, clearest testimony to that gospel that exists. Let me say that again. The local church, the gathering of real flesh and blood human beings, gathering together in a real space and a real time that remains the greatest testimony to the power of the gospel that has brought those people together in the first place. And that's what we see here in Acts 16, right? Just think about these people that we met. Lydia, rich, socially elite, you know, probably like hoity-toity, a little bit snobby even perhaps, right? I mean, she's wearing all this purple, right? You don't have low-class people coming near her because she's so set apart by her social status. She's not from around these parts, right? She's an immigrant, so she has the means to move from one part of the world to another part of the world simply to ply her trade, right? There aren't many Lydias in the world in the time of Paul. There aren't many Lydias in Philippi, certainly, in the time of Paul. She represents the cream of the social crop. And then right next to her in the pew on Sunday morning, you have this former slave girl. We don't know where she's from, but we know she's poor. Why else would her parents have sold her into slavery in the first place? And imagine just how socially ostracized she would have been for her entire life as she walks around with this demon possessing her. I mean, she would have been shunned her entire life. And here she is worshiping next to Lydia. Right next to her, this Philippian jailer, right? Probably like an ex-combat veteran in the Roman army, in the Roman army, so a, a blue-collar dude. I imagine that he has like his battalion name tattooed on his bicep here, right? Like he's just a, a rough and tumble guy, not the kind of person that Lydia or this slave girl probably are comfortable spending a lot of time with. But here they are, brought together by the blood of Christ, united by the blood of Christ. What a powerful testimony to the power of the gospel. Right? And that's what God does. That's how he has chosen to advance his kingdom and to bring glory to his name and the world. He testifies to the goodness of his gospel through the local church as a people are gathered and transformed by the power of his gospel. Doesn't that shape your love for the local church? Doesn't that shape your love for and even your hopes for our local church, life church? I mean, may we be a place and a people where as people are, are driving by on Jake Alexander or walking into Planet Fitness on Sunday morning, where they look over at us and say, man, there's no reason in the world those people ought to be gathering together. There's no reason in the world all of those different people from diverse backgrounds and stages of life and seasons of life and social positions, there's no way in the world those people should be coming together. Why could they possibly be doing that? What could compel all those people to gather together? Because when people ask that question, inevitably they'll be led to the answer. We gather because of Jesus. We gather because Jesus has brought us to himself and then he's brought us together and bound us together as a loving family in his name. That's how the local church testifies to the power of the gospel. May that happen here. May that happen through us. May that give us a vision for and a hope for who we could become as God's local church.
here in this place at this time. All right, that's the backstory. What's going on in Philippi that leads to this church? Now, fast forward in time about 10 years. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to these people, right? He's writing to Lydia and to the slave girl and to this Roman jailer. He's writing to the people who have come to Christ since he was in Philippi. He's writing to this beloved church. What does he write to say? What's the big picture of this book? Well, Philippians is unique in the letters of the Apostle Paul because in the letters of the Apostle Paul to churches, this is the only letter that isn't dealing with like a really serious problem in that local church. So when Paul writes to the church in Colossae or to the churches in Ephesus or to the church in Galatia, when he writes those letters to churches, he's dealing with with errors of doctrine, he's dealing with false teachers, he's dealing with sin. In fact, when he writes to the Galatian churches, their errors and doctrine are so serious that he begins chapter three, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right, because like their deception, the, the false teaching they're buying into is so serious, Paul likens it to, to witchcraft. When he writes to the Corinthian churches, their, their behavior is so problematic, their sin and their division is so marked that Paul says, you know guys, like it would honestly be better if you weren't even gathering. Like Paul, he has this business colleague who's gonna go towards Corinth on business one day and this guy's like, hey, do you have, do you have any churches that you know in Corinth? He's like, uh, no, none that you should bother visiting. Right? Because he, he just doesn't want to send anybody there because they're so divided. And so normally when Paul writes letters, he's dealing with issues like that. But when he writes the letter to the Philippians, there's barely a hint of that. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to ask two women, Eudoia and Syntyche, to get along better, <laughs> to agree. But even that seems like a really minor problem. For the most part, there's no problem in Philippians that Paul is writing to address. That's not why he picks up his pen to write this letter. Why then does he pick up his pen to write the letter? I'm just going to show you or tease out for you three themes or ideas that you can look for and listen for as we walk through this letter together over the weeks and months ahead. First of all, this is a letter that is supercharged with joy. Right? It's a letter, there's this electrical current running through it describing the joy that Christians can have and should have flowing out of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Or we're just going to see it again and again and again, like a measure of rejoicing in the gospel. This letter is going to teach us how to do it. It's going to help us celebrate the joy that we can have in Christ, in our relationships with one another, in prayer, in good and bad circumstances, in gospel work. It's just going to celebrate the joy that we can experience as God's people. Somebody after the first service, they told me, you know, James, you really owed us that because we just met 15 weeks in Ecclesiastes where King Solomon just said again and again and again, everything's vanity. And and that person was right, right? This is going to feel like an about face as we lean into the joy that we can have because of Christ Jesus in this letter. The second thing that we're going to see in this letter consistently throughout it is the fact that this letter is about unity in the gospel above all else. And I'm just so grateful for the time we're going to spend in, in the letter for that reason because, church, we need unity in the gospel above all else. 
just if you're in the room with us, I know there's not a ton of us here in this service today, but, but just look around the room for a minute. Look at the other faces here, some that you'll recognize, some that you won't. If you're on the live stream right now, uh, just imagine the rooms that might be, or the faces that might be in the room right now. But, but just think about the people who are in this room with us right now at this moment. I am 100% certain that there's somebody in the room right now at this moment who is going to vote very differently than you do on November 3rd. In fact, their ballot might be completely opposite of your ballot. I'm sure that there's someone in this room right now who has a very different understanding or view of COVID-19 than you do, right? I mean, it's just reality. There are people here in the room who think that this whole thing is basically a hoax and that we've grossly overreacted to it as a society. And there are people in the room right now who think, man, this thing threatens the very existence of our civilization. We have both of those poles in the room right now. There are people in the room right now who land in the complete opposite place that you do on like social justice and the social unrest that we're facing as a country, right? We've got in our church body, Black Lives Matter folk and Blue Lives Matter folk. That's just reality. So there are people in the room who are on the complete opposite side of that conversation than you are wherever you land. We are a people who by all accounts should be pronouncedly divided except for the standard that matters most. We are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, all of those other differences, all of those other divisions should fade into the background so that we can celebrate the reality that matters more than any other reality. The fact that we are a people bought with a price by the blood of Jesus. As we walk through this letter together, we have to see that and celebrate that again and again and again. The third thing on the big picture here, last one, is that we're going to see that this is a letter that's all about Jesus. I mean, there's just no better way to put it. This is a letter that's all about Jesus. In fact, in the letter to the Philippians, there are more references to the person of Christ, to the name of Christ, and to the work of Christ than in any other letter that Paul writes. When he picks up his pen to write Philippians, more than anything, he picks up his pen to write about Jesus. And in the process, he teaches us how to live lives that are all about Jesus. I think we see that, especially in the verse that, in my mind, is the theme verse of the letter. It comes in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul, he says, this is, this is what Philippians is about. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right, that's the target that this letter sets before us, the target that we as a church get to aim at together in the weeks that we'll spend in Philippians. May the manner of our lives, not just one slice of our lives, but may the manner of our entire lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May we stand firm together in one spirit. May we stand firm together with one mind, striving side by side as one for the faith of the gospel. That's what Philippians exhorts us to, the target we get to aim at as we think about and prayerfully walk through these things together.
All right, lastly this morning, let me just spend a couple of minutes on the greeting. So if you're not in Philippians 1, now's the time to get there. Let's just look together at Philippians 1, 1 and 2. I'm going to highlight three, three ideas here. This letter starts, like all ancient letters do, uh, with the names of its authors. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. It's the beginning of verse 1. Now, I think we'll see pretty quickly that while Timothy is with Paul as he writes this, this is a letter written by Paul. In fact, even in verse 3, and then moving forward, every single time there's a pronoun, like it's the pronoun I, not the pronoun we. And so this isn't a letter that we have written. It's a letter that Paul writes, I have written. And so this is Paul's writing. Timothy, his young protege, is with him. And so he includes Timothy in the greeting. It's coming from both of them. But these are the words of Paul. More significant than that, though, is the way that Paul describes the two of them. He says, we are servants of Christ Jesus. And it's possible that your translation there actually says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Because the Greek word that stands behind that, it can be translated servants, it can be translated slaves. It's the same word. Now that word's a lightning rod in our culture. It's probably a lightning rod in Paul's culture too. Why in the world would Paul describe himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus? What could possibly move him to do that? Why would he do that? In our culture today, one of the things that we treasure most, like the most valuable cultural commodity that we can have, it's the idea of unlimited personal freedom. That means we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us what not to do. We don't want anybody telling us who we should be. We don't want anyone telling us who we shouldn't be, right? We want the right, the freedom, freedom to set the own, our own rules, to set our own agenda, to determine our own identity, to define the direction of our own lives, right? That's, that's the narrative that we have bought into as a culture, and, and you see it everywhere. It's why the Disney princess screams out, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, Queen Elsa says. But that's just what we, we, we believe, that that's the key to happiness in our culture. But here's the thing we have to realize. No one's really free. Right? Everyone's enslaved by something. What that means is that there's something in your life and in mine. There's something that we believe we need in order to be truly happy in order to truly have peace. Maybe we have that thing, maybe we don't. But we are sure in our heart of hearts that if we could just have that or hold on to it, then our lives would be better. I don't know what that one thing is for you. I'm only kind of sure of what that one thing is for me. But we are all convinced that if we could just have that, if we could just have that one thing or hold on to that one thing, then everything in life would be better. And so maybe for you it's a relationship. right? You're convinced that like a relationship with that significant other, if you just had that, like, or if that just clicked into place, or that certain person was in that place, in that spot, then everything would be better. But the problem is, you're enslaved by that belief, right? Because your whole life is going to be driven to either have that person if you don't have them, or to hold on to that person if you do. And in the process, you're going to be miserable. Or maybe for you, it's this, this vision of, or definition of success in school, in the workplace, in athletics. I, I don't know. 
But your whole life is going to be driven forward by the desire to be known as a success and to experience some measure of success. And if you don't have that, you're going to be miserable until you get it. And the second that you do have it, then you're going to be miserable because you're going to be afraid that you're going to lose it. Maybe for you it's family and this like perfect family life. Maybe for you it's being known as a person of good reputation and and character and integrity. Maybe for you it's just, I I don't know what it is, some vision of the future where everything is, quote, back to normal and we don't have to worry about this COVID-19 mess anymore. But, But you've got something in your mind, in your heart, and that thing is crying out to you for allegiance and you are enslaved to that because there's just no such thing as freedom. There's no way we're ever free unless the supreme allegiance in our lives is the one master who enslaves us not to use us, not to exploit us, not to abuse us, but to give his life for us. See, the only master who will ever do that, the only master who calls you to follow him, not so that he can abuse you, not so that he can get something from you, but so that he can give to you his own self. The only master who has truly and perfectly done that is King Jesus. I mean, how wise is it of Paul to say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ? Because that means he knows that he's bowing his knee, that his supreme allegiance is to the one person who isn't going to fail you in the end. To the one Lord who's never going to abuse him. To the one master who doesn't want to just take and take and take, but who's given him his very self so that Paul can be adopted into his family, have a rich, glorious inheritance for eternity as a child of the Heavenly Father. Do you know the joy of being a slave to King Jesus? I mean, you know the joy of bowing your knee in supreme allegiance to him and him alone? That's the only situation in which we're not enslaved. That's the only situation in which we're not serving a master that just wants to use us and abuse us and leave us miserable in the process. Paul knows that. I pray that you do. I pray that we all do, too. Next, Paul mentions who he's writing to. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. There's some words there that I'm not even going to take the time to explain today. I just want you to circle in your Bible or with your mind that word saints. We can't miss this, church. Paul doesn't call the Philippians saints because they're particularly good people. He doesn't call the Philippians saints because they've got their moral act together. He doesn't call the Philippians saints because of all of the affection that he feels for them, though that all might be true. No, Paul calls the Philippians saints because of their position in Christ. He says that, you see it, right? He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. In other words, these people are saints not because of their behavior and not because of their work, but because of Christ's work, because of the status that Christ has given them. And we need to hear that. It doesn't matter how good the Philippians were or are. It doesn't matter how good we were or are. Like if it's up to us, saints is never on the table. 
Right? We're never described that way. We're never called that way. Perhaps your Bible here, by the way, says to all God's holy people or to the holy ones in Christ Jesus in Philippi. The point is that Paul's describing the Christian's position in Christ. Outside of Christ, we're lost, we're sinners, we're miserable, we're dead. In Christ, we're given the position of holy, of, as, as saints. And we struggle to, to fully buy into that idea because a lot of us have, have bought into this idea of sin that basically translates to sin is doing things wrong. And so like God's got his list of things that you should do and then a second list of things that you shouldn't do. And as long as you do the things that you should do and don't do the things that you shouldn't do, then, then you're good. And that's just the reality that a lot of us have, have inherited when it comes to our doctrine of sin. But that's not what the Bible says about sin. The Bible says that sin isn't a matter of doing the wrong things, it's a matter of loving the wrong things, or of loving the right things with the, with the wrong intensity, or in the wrong way, or inconsistently. And so when we think about what the Bible says about sin, the simple reality is that every single one of us have sinned today since we've been in this room, because there has been a moment when like, our minds wandered off, right? When we were singing great gospel truths to one another, and like, our, our, our lips were there, and our voices were there, but our hearts weren't there. And so we weren't loving with our whole hearts the things that we ought to be loving. The simple reality is that every single one of us, we've sinned as we've been in this room. Frankly, I've sinned since I've stood on this stage before you because there's been some small part of me that's wanted to seem impressive or competent in some way to you. So rather than loving the Lord with my whole heart, there's a little bit of me that loves James. That's sin according to the Bible. As I've prayed before you, there's been a part of me that's been somewhat distracted by what I'm about to say next or something other than what the Lord wants in that moment, honoring the Lord in that moment. And so in that moment, I'm a sinner, not a saint. In that moment, you're a sinner, not a saint, apart from Christ. It was true in Philippi. It's true for you. It's true for me. But Paul addresses these people just as he would address you if you are in Jesus today, as saints. Because that's what the gospel can do. It can take people who can't help but sin people who will sin every waking moment of their lives and it makes us God's holy people. My question for you today is given the fact that Jesus made that possible, given the fact that Jesus died an excruciating and undeserved death so that that was possible, given the fact that Jesus offers his sainthood to you freely by his grace, how could you possibly give him just one slice of your life? Last thing this morning, verse two, the, the, the greeting in the letter. So we've seen who it's from and who it's to. Paul, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, friends, right there is the message of Philippians and the message of the whole Bible in one verse. Right, Martin Luther, the great church reformer, he said, those two words, grace and peace, to those two words belongs all of Christian doctrine. Everything we need to know about our God and what he's done to save us. Grace, that means everything begins with God's loving, saving initiative and not with you and not with me. 
I mean, God didn't wait for us to get our spiritual acts together. He didn't wait for us to clean our lives up. He didn't wait for us to get things on the right track and fix our problems. No, while we were still sinners, when we were just messes, God acted in order to save us. That's grace. And in peace. That's the fruit of God's grace. It's the result of his saving initiative in our lives. It means that God gives us rest blessing and hope and peace. And he isn't stingy about those things. Right? Once we realize that he's given us everything we need, everything that he could possibly give us in Christ by his grace, that's when we can know peace. And so again, I just ask you this morning, has your life been changed by God's grace? Do you know his peace? Do you know the joy of calling Jesus Christ your master? Do you know the privilege of being called by Jesus Christ saints? If you do, how could Jesus possibly be just one part of your life? Father, we thank you for everything that Jesus is to us, for all that Jesus has given us. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us such an understanding of those truths that we rightly give to Jesus our whole lives. He is beautiful and glorious and holy and awesome and powerful. He's gracious, he's loving, he's merciful, he's tender. May we understand those truths, be moved by those truths. So, they, so that we can live lives of worship and devotion to him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.